Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am excited because Jeff Fredorn's in studio, and we're going to continue our uh, study uh, this summer on various topics, and this one today is going to be on Psalm 22, My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me? If you saw his devotional at MyFaithRadio.com, we gave him two minutes, and he did an excellent job, but I said, Jeff, I think we should explore this even further, and he agreed to that, but frankly... My head is still spinning from last time he was Uh-oh. on. <laughs> yeah, and that of many listeners as well, that I'm still trying to piece together the discussion we had on the glorified body of Jesus mm. when Thomas approached him and saw him, and Jesus said, come near me, and the Greek word is E-I-S, ice, which can mean into or toward me because the minute he got a glimpse of jesus he said my lord and my god he saw the risen christ and And the discussion we had was were the holes in his hands and feet present or was his glorified body one of perfection isn't this just a fascinating oh i've lost some sleep on this one i know i had not ever thought of this in 20, 30 years, never even considered it, that he didn't have any holes in his body. And it's, you know, when I've taught on the glorified body over the years in my end times class or whatever, there's always been a little something like, "Eh, why does he still have these marks? Because I'd often get asked that question. Well, if Jesus had these holes, will I still have my scars from my appendicitis or my whatever, right? And I would say, no, and I think that's right, right? No, but so why does Jesus still show the scars? And uh, I started, and then I talked to somebody, and they said uh, that they didn't think that Jesus still had the holes, and it sent me into a tizzy, and I started looking at it. And actually, nowhere in the Scripture does it specifically say that he had holes in his hands and his feet. And as you indicated, that word, that Greek word, ice, I think Thomas was demanding that sign. That was, he set the criteria. I need to see the holes in his hands and the, and the wound in his side. So where did that come from? That was Thomas's idea. It was Thomas. Thomas, in his unbelief, told his fellow disciples, he wouldn't believe their testimony. Right. He's saying, no, I'm not going to believe until I stick my finger in his side, right? And, and that, that's why I called him a couple weeks ago. I called him stubborn doubting Thomas, right? That I think he was being stubborn. And then Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, I'm here. Put your hand here onto or towards or against the Greek word ice. Can mean onto, can mean into, right? And I think Thomas meant into. I think Jesus said onto. Put your hand. See, I'm perfect. I'm here. And then he says, like you said, my Lord and my God. And then I think that, I think it's verse 29, and it says, because Jesus tells Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe. Not because you stuck a finger in my side, right? Right. Because you've seen me, you now believe. 
Blessed is he who believes who has not seen. Right? That's us. And I think Jesus was saying, Thomas, you should have listened to the testimony of the disciples. Mm-hmm. Thousands, millions of people will believe in the next 2,000 years yeah. because of their testimony. You didn't. You were demanding this this sign. And it just goes to, is the glorified body perfect or not? And the text said he was beaten beyond recognition. And the 40 lashes, why were all of those wounds mysteriously healed in the glorified body, yet not the holes in his hands and feet inside? Yeah, nobody thinks those wounds are still visible in the resurrected Jesus Christ. So right. from the from the crown of thorns, yes. he would have had holes. From the beating, from the pulling out of the beard, from the flogging. I mean, he would have been a battered mess, mm-hmm. unrecognizable. Remember, we read a passage from Isaiah that said he was beaten beyond recognition of that of any man, beyond the appearance of a man, I think is the, the passage. And we talk about tradition. We know tradition is what it is, and we like tradition, right? Mm, we so do. we think of the three wise men showing up the night Jesus was born. Find that in the text. <laughs> yeah, it's not. They've he, Jesus, most Scripture doesn't specifically say when Jesus was born. Many theologians believe he was born in late spring or early summer, and that the wise men from the east who saw the star in the sky appeared later, potentially, around the winter solstice, around that December 25th. And that's when the wise men showed up, probably on horses, by the way, and not camels. And uh, there was three gifts, not necessarily three wise men. Mm -hmm. So we get a story in our heads, right? And that becomes the biblical truth. This goes to the heart even of what we're going to cover today. This goes to the if heart. If we get to it. Yeah, if we get to it. <laughs> this goes to the heart of what I tell my classes all the time. You need to believe what you believe and why you believe it from Scripture. Not because I said so or your preacher said so or a book said so or the radio said so, but just as Paul commended the Bereans who searched the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true, so too we as Christians should individually search the scriptures ourselves to see if what Paul says is true. So, Jeff, I appreciated the devotional you did on Psalm 22. I think this is another one of those passages as we look at the last words of Christ on the cross, especially when it gets down to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I always referred to him as Father up until this point. Now it's my God, my God. And did did God the Father turn his back on Jesus? I mean, we're going to talk about this today, and I think it's going to be a great hour. Yeah, so if you saw the devotional, I had two minutes to get this out, and I I conclude that I don't think God did forsake Jesus. One of the things going into this that we need to understand is the word forsake means to abandon. So when we think of the word forsaken, we, we should be using the word, and I'll use it over the course of the hour. I'll use forsaken and abandon interchangeably, but we'll see that. So the question is, did God the Father abandoned God the Son on the cross when he was atoning for the sins of the world. So that's kind of the question at hand today. Jeff Redorn's my guest, and we're going to dive into this starting right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me... So what I thought we would do to set the framework for this is to uh, talk about... There are seven statements of Jesus on the cross. 
And very briefly, I want to get to the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me statement after briefly going through the earlier statements on the cross because they're just kind of, it's cool. It's He has seven statements on the cross. So I thought we would, we would uh, look at those briefly first. So the first statement he makes on the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is in Luke 23, and he makes this statement after some in the crowd says, he saves others, himself he cannot save. And Jesus, in his mercy, is saying to the Father, even for those that are putting him on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, I don't think anybody there really truly understood that God came to earth as a man, and now man is crucifying God. And he says, forgive them. The next thing he says is to the thief on the cross, to one of the thieves on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, this is one of my favorite stories to teach from because the first thief says, you know, if you are the son of God, why don't you get us down from here? Did he believe? Uh, He didn't believe. But the second thief says basically, oh, we deserve our sin. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a simple, beautiful picture of faith. This thief believed who Jesus was and believed that he had the power to bring him into paradise, into heaven, even though they were both about to die. Now, there is biblical faith. hmm? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the next thing he says. Then he says this, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. This is in John 19, spoken to the two closest people of Jesus, his mother and John, the disciple. And I've heard several different teachings on this, and, and I think this is a very simple statement. Jesus knows he's about to die, and the two people he loves, he's telling John, John, look after my mother. And I think it's that simple. At this point, there's something else that happens. It says that there was darkness over the land, Matthew 27. Now, this Greek word land can also mean earth. So there's actually many who believe that there was darkness actually over the entire earth, right? And there's actually some historical uh, records that indicate that. In fact, there's a report from Pilate to the emperor Tiberius where Pilate assumes the emperor's knowledge of a certain widespread darkness and even mentioned that it took place between the hours of 12 and 3 in the afternoon. Wow, cool. All right, now the next statement. So this is the fourth statement of Jesus on the cross. This is the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I thought what I would do is read a commentary that um, that basically describes the kind of the tr- traditional view of how many see this passage. All right, it says this, quote, These words are found in Matthew 27. The horrifying presence of sin surrounded Jesus at his dreadful moment, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. To be forsaken of God was much more of a source of anguish to Jesus than to anyone else because he was absolutely holy. Never for one moment during his entire earthly life did he ever stop step outside of this intimate fellowship with his father. Yet this was something the father had to do. Imagine for a moment how hard this must have been for the father. He loved his son. Jesus had never had a thought that was out of harmony with the father's mind. His son never spent a moment out of the conscious presence of the father. He had never committed one sin. And so 
this is kind of the the one commentaries showing the traditional view that Jesus was forsaken by God. God had to turn away from the sin as Jesus becomes sin for us. And in fact, it will go on to mention Habakkuk one thirteen, where it says, He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon wickedness. So the commentary continues and he says, So the Holy Father had to turn his face and pour his wrath upon his own son. This was the greatest sacrifice Jesus could have possibly made, yet he had to feel forsaken of God because that is the necessary consequence of sin. So there's your picture of this traditional view of separation, that God had to, in some way, turn from Jesus. And in that moment, in that moment that God laid, you know, the sins of the world on him. But is that what really happened? Is that what really transpired on the cross? Yeah. And, and I have to ask this question, if Jesus is God, how can God the Father separate himself from God the Son. We'll address that after the break. <laughs> All right. Jeff Dorn's my guest. We're talking about Psalm uh, 22 today. And from the, if you have a question or a comment, let me know what it is. Uh, 877-933-2484. We'd love for you to be involved in whatever way you'd like. We'll be right back. to be uh, my friend, but he does not cash the checks, which I appreciate. I pay I, you to be my friend. I haven't seen any checks. Well... Could you Venmo it in the future? No, no, I'm not going to Venmo okay. it. Then it's... <laughs> then I, there's no way. I send the paper checks. Maybe check with your wife because I send them. And you don't cash them, which I appreciate. <laughs> You're a good guy, buddy. Ah, thanks. Now, we're talking about can God the Father separate himself from God the Son? We are. We're talking about... Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a great topic, and Jeff, we're off to a good start. Let's pick up. Yeah, so Jesus quotes from that psalm, Psalm 22, and we'll get, we got, we have to walk through some of the details of that psalm, but kind of two questions before we, right before we get to that psalm, is the question I asked right before the break, if God, if Jesus is God, and God is God, how does God separate himself from God? How does God forsake God? How does God abandon God. And so this has always kind of bothered me. I don't know if this is ever, anybody else out there has ever really thought about this. And the other part of this is that, well, so God had to turn his eyes from sin because he cannot behold it. And that's that Habakkuk passage where it says he cannot look on wickedness. So, but wait a minute. If God is omniscient and God is omnipresent, isn't he looking upon sin every single day? in the world? Isn't there wickedness? Doesn't wickedness fill the world? And doesn't he see it all? And so I never understood what that really means. And so I want to spend just a quick minute looking at this Habakkuk passage that says he cannot look at sin. 
So in this passage, and in, in, it's in Habakkuk chapter 1, where in verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk is complaining to the Lord about the sin and the evil of Israel. Okay, he's looking around and saying, God, God, don't you see all this wickedness? And God actually answers him in verse 5, and he says, yeah, I know, I've seen it all, and that's why I'm sending the Babylons, the Babylonians, the Babylons, the Babylonians, hmm. and they are going to take Israel captive, and that's going to be part of their judgment. And then in verse 12, Habakkuk basically says, well, good, he says, because in verse 13, you're basically, you're too holy to look upon this stuff. It doesn't mean that he can't look upon it. It means that he sees it, and Habakkuk wants it to end. You're too holy, Lord, to look upon this stuff. So it's not an absolute, you know, kind of uh, truth that says God can't look on sin. He sees sin all the time. When you quote Habakkuk that says God can't look on sin, what he's really saying is, Lord, do something about this wickedness in the world. And when you think about that, isn't that what the psalmists have said uh, in many different places in Scripture, Jeremiah 12, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? Job 21 says, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? Psalm 73, for I've, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of their wicked. And Jonah, he saw the wickedness of Nineveh and said, God, I don't want to go preach to these guys. I want you to judge them, do something about them, because you're too holy for this wickedness, basically. You shouldn't have to look upon it. That's what I think Habakkuk was saying. That's what I think that passage means. So why does God, why does he let this wickedness continue on earth? And I think the answer is actually very simple. Psalm 103.8 says that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He wanted the Ninevites to repent and turn to him. And Jonah didn't get it, did he? He wanted God to curse them, to judge them, to wipe them out. God says, no, today is the day of salvation. There is a judgment day that's coming, but that's not yet today. And I always think about that story of Jonah and these other passages when I think about you know, enemies of, of ours, you know, foreign and domestic. And it's like, oh, God, just judge them. And, and it's like, oh, I think I call that the Jonah complex. <laughs> I think we have to remember that today is the day of salvation. There is a day of judgment coming, but today is not it. And I think that's what that Habakkuk passage was all about. It's great insight. The other aspect of this is that another night of no sleep. <laughs> uh, you know, what? so what happened on the cross? We know that God laid the iniquity of us all on Christ on that day, Isaiah 53, as we just read. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For he made him, Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So, Here's this passage or this understanding that Jesus somehow became sin, but I'm going to submit today that there's an alternate uh, translation of that. Many theologians believe that it's not that he became sin for us, but that he became a sin offering for us. So is there a difference between Jesus becoming sin 
uh, the Holy One who never sinned, becoming sin, versus Jesus becoming a sin offering for us. You see the distinction? Mm -hmm. I think this is one of these English things that we just don't pick up on. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, that Passover lamb was a sin offering. Jesus is our sin offering. And so I think 2 Corinthians 5.21 should read, for he made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us. So let's see if that understanding changes the picture a little bit as we go through this. So now this word forsaken and Psalm 22. So remember at the beginning I said forsaken is the Greek. I'm not even going to pronounce, try to pronounce this Greek word. It's too hard. But it literally means to abandon. So let's remember this. And let's remember if Jesus is God in the flesh, you know, I, just, I, I have to ask this question. Does God abandon his people? Did God abandon Adam? Did God abandon Noah when they sinned? Did God abandon Abraham when he sinned? Did God abandon Moses or Peter? Will God forsake or abandon us ever? And I say, no, 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 no. That's not the picture. So David, writing Psalm 22, says this, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. We see David's lament. He felt far from God. Was God far from David? Did God abandon God? David. And I think most theologians say, no, of course not, he didn't. Is that how David felt? Did David feel far from God? And the answer is yes, he did. But he goes on, verse 11, do not be far from me, Lord, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. David was lamenting to God, why are you so far from me? Can't you see all my enemies surround me? It goes on to say, verse 3, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. David actually answers his own lament. No, (laughs) God has been faithful to those who trust him. He's been faithful to those in Israel, and he will be faithful to David. He actually answers his own lament. But then Psalm 22 changes tone, all right? And we turn to Christ. We see, we're going to start seeing Christ on the cross. Oh, awesome. Jeff Verdorn is my guest, and we're going to continue our study on Psalm 22 right after the break. If you have any comments or questions, anything you'd like clarification on, you can just send the text to 877 877- I'm so glad you're spending this time with us today. We're thrilled that you're getting this teaching, and uh, I'm thrilled to be getting it myself. We'll be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. 
All right, we're back with Jeff Redorn. We're talking about Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's quite a study, Jeff. I'm loving this. Yeah, there's a lot here, isn't there? Yep, there really is. So we were discussing the first part of Psalm 22, where David is lamenting that God is far from him, even though God really is not far from anyone. But then in verse 6, the psalm changes and, and starts describing these events that, that are absolutely prophetic to what happens to Jesus on the cross. So listen to some of these descriptions here. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Well, this was absolutely fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. Matthew 27 says, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. This is a direct prophecy for Christ on the cross. But it goes even further. In verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. My mouth has dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. They pierce my hands and feet. They divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garments. Well, clearly now, this is a messianic psalm Mm -hmm. predicting the crucifixion of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the descriptions here where it says that his mouth is dry and his heart was melting like, like wax, most of us probably don't understand what that is. We understand the piercing but not the, well, my heart melting like wax. I found a one doctor's description of what he believes a man would go through on the cross. This is a little heavy, but I'd like to read it if I can. He says this, Then another agony begins, a terrible crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. One remembers again this 22nd Psalm, the 14th verse, where it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melted in the midst of my bowels. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluid has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. The dehydrated tissue sends their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus grasps his fifth cry, I thirst. One remembers another verse from Psalm 22. My strength is dried up and my tongue cleaveth to my jaw. A sponge soaked in pasca or pisca, the cheap sour wine that is lifted to his lips. He apparently doesn't take any of the liquid. The body of Jesus is now in extremes. And he feels the chill of death creeping through his tissue. This realization brings out his six words on the cross, possibly little more than a tortured whisper. It is finished. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nails straightens his legs, takes a breath, and utters his seventh 
and last cry on the cross, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That was one doctor's description of describing the things from Psalm 22, describing it kind of with a medical understanding of what would have happened to a man on the cross. And by the way, we just read the fifth, sixth, and seventh statements of Jesus on the cross, didn't we? I thirst, it is finished, and Father, into my hand, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So now the traditional teaching says, coming back to Psalm 22, that in this moment that we just read, God the Father abandons God the Son. Hmm. I, I, I just don't see it. I don't think God the Father in this moment when his Son needs him most abandons God the Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. But I think David and Jesus know and knew the rest of Psalm 22. Starting in verse 19, it says this, But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. And both of them know that God actually doesn't forsake them because he says later in verse 24, for he is not despised or scorned, the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. God knows, or David knows that God doesn't hide his faith from from believers in him, for those who have put their trust in him. He's heard his cry, and I think Jesus knew that too on the cross. That's why the last words he says on the cross is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I just don't think the picture that is taught commonly that God had to turn from God the Son in that moment. I think Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 because he's reminding us and the world that this psalm that David penned hundreds of years earlier is actually about me. Do you see these descriptions about how they mocked me and beat me and pierced me and my bones are out of joint? You know, that's probably another description that doctors have said. If you crucify a man, you know, one of the first things to go would be the shoulder joints. My bones are out of joint, and yet not one bone is broken. That's exactly what happened Jesus' legs were not broken on the cross. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's referring back to Psalm 22 and saying, hey, this psalm is about me. I'm fulfilling it. And like David, who in his time of need felt abandoned, felt forsaken by God in that moment, God, where are you? Do you think Jesus wanted to go for, on that cross? What do you think the Garden of Gethsemane was all about? Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But in the end, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And he went to that cross. And I don't think God abandoned him on that cross. I think he was right there with him. And I think he experienced that pain and that anguish, that physical torture and the pain of that death. But God has other plans, doesn't he? Verse 27 (laughs) You want to know how it all ends? I do. And all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. I don't think God abandoned David. And I don't think God 
abandoned Jesus on the cross. And as I said in the devotional, I wrapped it up, and I said this, and I know that God will never abandon us because he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I don't think God is an abandoning God. I think he's a faithful God. So this last truth, I don't think God will forsake us either. I don't think God will abandon us either. This gets to the whole concept of our assurance of salvation, that once we are a believer in Christ Jesus, God is with us forever. He sends his Holy Spirit to be with us forever, and he will never leave us. I know, believers, I know that sometimes we feel far from God. And sometimes we look around the world and we see the wickedness and the sin prospering. And we say, Lord, how can this happen? And if you're like me, there's <laughs> most days it's like, Lord, this would be a good day to come back. Right? Anybody know of a righteous king who's willing to come and return and rule this whole mess? That's what Jesus said he's going to do one day. So I think Jesus as a man just like David as a man, just like us as men, sometimes feel far from God. But God is never far from us. He is always there. So I think the last, some of the last passages I'd like to cover today are some of the um, promises in Scripture that describe today our our born-again believers assurance in Christ Jesus to show that God will never abandon us, never leave us, never forsake us. Can we go there? Yeah, let's get started. So there, I remember when I first started studying scripture and this question of the believer's assurance of salvation would, would come up quite a bit. If we could lose our salvation, I needed to understand how, why, under what circumstances? Was it one sin a day for 30 days straight? Was it five sins a day for 10 days? Well, you know, exactly how, what was the threshold mm-hmm. that I could potentially lose my salvation? And additionally, if we can lose our salvation, well, then I kind of felt like the church should be just as busy keeping people saved as they are trying to save people. Because we don't want to catch the fish and put them in the, you know, in the net and then just have them jump out again, Right. And this perplexed me and perplexed me. And so I saw it. This kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier. I would see this book. I'd see this article. I'd see this teaching. And one teacher would say, of course, we cannot lose our salvation. Another teacher would say, no, of course, we can lose our salvation. And I was tossed to and fro. And I remember I finally took this issue and put it up on the shelf in my brain. Do you have any shelves in your brain? Oh, yeah. Do you? Yeah. Well, this one was right up here. A lot of cobwebs up there. Over on the right. And yeah, I got some cobwebs too. And it's like, all right. And I remember thinking, Lord, this seems really important to me. I need to figure this out. But I was kind of at an impasse. I don't know how long it was later, a few weeks later. And I was reading this passage from Ephesians 1. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed... You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. 
And I remember thinking, well, of course we're secure in our salvation. It couldn't be any other way. God has given us the Holy Spirit who will be with us for how long? Forever. And he says this Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So he's like saying, okay, I'm going to give you this Holy Spirit until your full inheritance comes. That's future, and I promised it. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you this Holy Spirit as a deposit. And you know what's happened? Over the next months after that happened, I started reading all over in my scripture. And everywhere in the Bible, there's these promises from God that we are secure in our salvation. So I read things like Romans 8. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, what's in creation? Well, pretty much everything except for God. So nothing in creation can separate us from God. And God says in John 10 that no one can snatch them out of my hands. I hold them in my hand and Jesus holds them in my hand and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. So he holds us. So that pretty much covers everything. In creation and out of creation, we cannot be separated from God in Christ Jesus. Sounds like an assurance passage to me. Mm. And I parted, started putting little ESs all over my Bible, eternally secure, eternally secure, eternally secure. And it's all over the place. So 1 Peter 1 says this, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth. We've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the gospel. He rose from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last days. So who keeps our salvation secure? God does. Where does he keep it? In heaven. It's shielded by his power. A good friend of mine always says this line, if I could lose my salvation, I would lose it every day. And I think that says a lot about, one, us, because everyone can identify with that. Do, do any of us live by perfect faith, even as born-again believers? No, we all don't live out our calling that God has called us to live holy because he is holy. We all fall short every single day. Jesus is the only one ever to walk the face of the earth who lived by perfect faith. He was holy and never sinned. The rest of us, even in our born-again state, well, we fall short. But God says our salvation is we don't have to keep it because he keeps it, shielded by God's power until that day. Isn't that good news? That's very good news. All right, let's take a little break. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're talking about Psalm 22 today. And if you've missed any of this, you're going to probably think, hmm, I'm going to have to go hear this from the beginning to get the big picture, and I'm going to probably have to listen to it again and maybe a third time just so I can do the same. (laughs) But you can always do that at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back in just a minute. Okay.
I'm back with Jeff Verdorn. I always say if you heard something you need clarification on, let us know. We'll do our best. And so with a little bit uh, of our remaining time, Jeff, I know you've got a few more things to share, but I have also some cleanup on aisle five. <laughs> All right? Yep, gotcha. All right. Um, let's see. Um, even if it's sin offering, my understanding is that offerings merely atone for sin. Therefore, in order to have all sins of mankind atoned for through one sacrifice, then Jesus had to have taken upon himself the sins of the world. Ergo, became sin. And then he quotes Second Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah, so we know that Jesus atoned for sin. Uh, in Scripture, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but also for, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's the, you know, uh, John says the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So the question is, he's making a the question is, is there, is there a distinction between being sin or becoming sin and being a sin offering? And he says, what well, he had to become sin because Scripture says he became sin. Well, in the English it says he became sin. So if I read... 2 Corinthians 5, 21, this is what we covered earlier. God made him who had no sin, Jesus was perfect, we, we agree on that, to be sin for us. And, for example, I have an NIV Bible in front of us. When it says sin there, there's a little footnote, F, or, alternate translation, or to be a sin offering, to be a sin offering. So that's an alternative English translation of the Greek that's there. And I just submit that if you if you if you interpret it that way, I think the picture or the plausibility that God didn't have to abandon Jesus becomes actually more clear that He became a sin offering. And so I don't think, uh, obviously, the atonement isn't any less like the question kind of implies because He was a sin offering versus Him becoming sin. Do you see what I'm saying? I, he just I, became a sin offering, just like the Lamb was a sin offering. To God. Now, he made the perfect offering. Remember, he was the lamb without spot or blemish. The Passover lamb, as Paul described Jesus, he was, uh, is our Passover lamb. And even John saw the lamb in heaven as if he'd been slain. So he was the perfect sacrifice. Look, what, <laughs> what transpired on the cross spiritually in this atoning work, I mean, you know, oh my goodness, that's way over my pay grade, right? Exactly what does the atonement look like spiritually? And so I'm not trying to describe what happened spiritually with, with sin unto Jesus in some way because of his offering. I know that he was the atoning sacrifice for sin. Uh, so the point that I was just trying to make was, but did God turn his back on Jesus in that moment? And that's where I'm saying, no, I don't think Scripture demands that. I really don't think Scripture says that. I don't think it was necessary. And even, I, I think it's, it's, it's wrong to say that God abandons God. God the Father abandons God the Son on the cross. So, you know, that was kind of my main point. All right, we've got some pushback, Jeff, which I know you're no stranger to. Um, and dear listener, Kathy is concerned. She's got a big danger warning. So if Jesus was not forsaken, our sin would not be paid for. Uh, God's justice demands payment for sin. If God didn't abandon his son, then the penalty for sin was not paid. I would say if Jesus didn't atone for the sins of the world, then our debt has not been paid. 
I don't think the atonement of Christ on the cross necessitates the forsaking of God. You see what I'm saying? The act of atonement is God placing the sins of the world on the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That's the atonement. And uh, so whether or not God had to in some way, shape, or form forsake him or abandon him doesn't negate one way or another the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't think that, I think the fact that Christ, look, I absolutely agree with the question that without the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and by the way, his death, burial, and resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. Our faith is worthless. It's futile. Um, so I'm not questioning the atonement of Christ on the cross. That's a necessity right. for, for what's transpiring here. Can I understand how God places sin on Christ and how that all trend? No, I can't. This is kind of a very specific question. Did God then turn his back or abandon Jesus? And I don't think that question affects the atonement on the cross, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You see that? I do see that. All right. I know. I, I I see it. How it would be problematic, though, for, for certain. I mean, I think when you when I think of the humanity of Jesus, that he did go and suffer the most heinous death possible. He became sin, and he's on the cross. And I just yesterday I had a guest on the show that was going through what it was a near death experience in the hospital, and he was. After 40 years of following Jesus, he was saying, God, are you there? Is there a real God? Is there, hmm. are you even real? Hmm. How your brain could just go to the worst place. I mean, how people, when they're desperate, will say incredibly desperate things. Well, that's why I said earlier that we have all felt far from God in moments of desperation. Yeah, but, right. But I, you know, and, and when we take it to kind of ourselves, when we take this truth that I don't think God abandoned David. In Psalm 22, I don't think God abandoned Jesus on the cross, and I know God doesn't abandon us. So even though we can feel it, feel far from God, and we've all been there, we've all been there, know that God is always near those who love him, Jeff, always. Jeff, didn't, back in this time, didn't they greet one another with reciting the first line of a psalm? That was a way of connecting. And if that was the case, that also meant that the entirety of the psalm was what they meant. I have heard that that was a common kind of greeting in Israel where you would quote a psalm. So Jesus, by quoting the first line of Psalm 22, is really really calling upon that entire psalm. Uh, That's why we went through the whole thing, right? It ends gloriously, doesn't it? Almost the whole thing or most of it. And where in that line where he says, and he is not, he has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So, yeah, I just, this is a very specific kind of understanding that I have just concluded that I don't think God abandoned God the Son in his greatest moment on the cross. And I don't think, I really don't think it affects the atonement because your listeners are absolutely right. If we started playing with the atonement in any way, shape, or form, well, now we got a big problem, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, had to take away the sins of the world. And I've actually been on this show talking about his atonement uh, a few weeks ago. I don't remember how long ago. 
but talking about the significance of Christ's atonement on the cross, that he died for the sins of the world. Remember the first John uh, 2 passage. He is the atoning sacrifice, or the King James Version, the propitiation of our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, that is the truth of what transpired spiritually on the cross. He atoned for sin. Absolutely. A mm-hmm. couple of comments before we end mm-hmm. this fascinating hour. Jeff, thank you, by the way. Uh, Jerry says, I agree with Jeff because proof that God accepts the sacrificial lamb is that the sacrifice is consumed and Christ's body was consumed by death. Hmm. Julie said, totally agree with Jeff. This makes complete sense if you look at Scripture. Thank you for explaining this so well. I don't think that was your wife, Julie. That's another Julie. <laughs> I uh, now remember, uh, agree or not ag- agree, you need to search the Scriptures and believe what you believe uh, because of what you have studied in the Scripture. As you have are re- led by God and His Holy Spirit who will lead you into truth, study the Scriptures for yourself just as Paul commends the Bereans for. Mm-hmm. So. And Kathy concludes by saying he doesn't abandon us because of Jesus' death on the cross, which is true. Thank you, Jeff. It's been great having you on. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.